perfection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. That's good news shared by all of God's people all over the world, and we are part of that wonderful, wonderful family. A man named Lazarus was a very much loved brother. He had been very sick. The doctors couldn't help him. Jesus had not responded to heal him. Lazarus died, and a crowd of mourners came, and Jesus came. And Martha came out to, to, to meet him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. Jesus responded, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? What good news Jesus had. And of course, in that particular story, on the spot, Jesus raised him from the dead. He showed his power that he is the Lord over life and death. And we serve him and love him and we have hope because of him. So today we're concluding our series in this global historic faith, looking at the various components of the Apostles' Creed, which is the agreed summary of so much of our foundation that all churches would have in common. And we finish with two final statements, two glorious statements. Number one, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And number two, I believe in life everlasting. Amen. We've already covered earlier in this series all about who Jesus is. We believe in Jesus. We know about his birth. We know about his death. We know that he rose from the dead. But today we're looking at, do we know that we raised from the dead? That we too will live again? That life in this time, 80 years, 100 years, whatever God gives you, 20 years, is not the end of the story. And these two statements, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, summarize the great benefits that Jesus brought to us by his death and resurrection. This summarizes the biggest of our hopes that he has won for us. And all over the world, God's people walk in a tremendous amount of confidence and a tremendous amount of hope because of what we're summarizing today as resurrection of the body and everlasting life. Those two items give so much confidence and hope that for God's people. Why do we have confidence? Why does this matter? What does it mean for us? I'm going to try to outline with a number of scriptures just four reasons that we have confidence. But there are so many scriptures. This really is central to all of the New Testament. The early church was put in prison. They were making waves. The big challenge of the day was that they were preaching the resurrected Jesus, the one that others had put to death and didn't want to admit that actually they weren't successful. He rose again. He conquered death. The resurrection is the biggest news, and without it, we wouldn't have any reason to write the New Testament. We would just have historical facts about some crazy guy that thought he was God. But because of the resurrection, 
we know that he was true and that all that he spoke is not just a historical record, but the truth, not just a maniac who thought he was somebody. We've got plenty of those around even today, but it was the truth that Jesus was who he said he was. So number one, why do we have confidence? Death is our enemy. We need to start by setting the context here. All throughout Scripture, death is viewed as the enemy. So there's times in our own life that we might have a friend who suddenly passes away or someone who becomes sick. We feel like it's premature. May I suggest to you that even at the age of 120, God might feel like that's premature. God takes no pleasure in the fallen nature of mankind that shortens our life. God's will and His pleasure are actually in bringing life, not death. I know your insurance company thinks that everything God does is an act of God, that is something disastrous. But there's a whole lot more that God does besides control the weather and the hurricanes. Yes, He brings judgment. But God is the God of life. And death is viewed throughout Scripture as our enemy. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul sums it up this way. He says, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy of Jesus to be destroyed is death. And he has conquered that. Jesus has won. He has beaten. And so then in verse 18 we read, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Death is our enemy, and Jesus has beaten death. Death is the number one enemy for us and for God, and Jesus has already won that battle. What we studied a few weeks ago outlined that again. He was killed, he was put to death, and he triumphed over death. It wasn't that he somehow escaped before he died. He beat death. What other faith, what other religion can tell you the truth that there's a God we serve who is bigger than death? Only Jesus has conquered death. Only Jesus has been there, done that, and come back. Death is our enemy. We have confidence because Jesus, who became fully human, triumphed over death. And so he's called the first fruits, meaning the first among humanity. He's called the firstborn of the dead, meaning the firstborn like we also will be, following in his footsteps. The painting that Addison mentioned a moment ago above the tithe box was about this theme. Alan O'Connell painted that as the scripture of Jesus being the first sheaf where the priest in the Old Testament would go out to the new crop, cut off one sheaf of, uh, of wheat, bring it into the temple, and wave it before the Lord as a thank offering, saying, thank you, thank you, here's the first of the harvest, and there's a whole field out there just like it. Look at the wonderful thing you have given us, God. 
And there's a whole bunch more that we're about to harvest. Jesus is the first sheaf. He's the fulfillment of that. The firstborn of people who died and then rose again. And there's a whole humanity following in my footsteps. He's the firstborn among the dead. We have confidence that there's a resurrection because of Jesus' resurrection. Number two, we have confidence because the bodily resurrection of us is promised by Jesus. Not just some philosophy that we've had our seminaries think together and dream up and agree of some formula. This is the words of Jesus. Let's just look at a few small samples. Jesus, John chapter 5, verse 28. Do not be amazed at this. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus said that. Don't be amazed, Jesus said. I know about life after death. In fact, there's coming a time when all people of the earth will rise. And that's good news for some, and that's bad news for others. But Jesus came to offer us life. Jesus came to offer us reward. And for those who believe in him, for those who follow him, this is great confidence. There's coming a day where all who are in their graves will rise again and be rewarded. Others will rise and be condemned. The next chapter, and by the way, John has so much to say about Jesus being the life. The whole book of John, over and over and over. He's the river of life, the water of life, the bread of life. And in John chapter 6, Jesus is following this amazing um, miracle of feeding of the 5,000, with teaching as they're looking for him to do a few more lunch miracles and Jesus starts talking about eternity. And he says, guys, I'm actually the bread of life. Like, you have me, you've got eternal life. I know I just did a big miracle, 5,000 people got lunch today for free, but it's not about that. I'm actually the bread of life. And then he starts to tell them in detail what he means. Uh, John chapter 6 Verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you don't believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You know, Jesus said that he had come for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. And one of the reasons that we have so much confidence about eternity is here, once again, we have that one who came to save promising eternal life. And more than that, he's giving us a bird's eye view into the Trinity. 
And he's saying, this is what we think. My Father's will is that I do this. My Father's will is that I don't lose anybody. We don't live in fear that maybe I'll be the one left behind. We joke about that sometimes. I remember the first time I saw the Northern Lights, and it was so amazing and so supernatural that and I was in Bible school at the time, too, and we looked around thinking, man, did they leave us behind? Like, it was glorious. Just this amazing experience. But actually, we don't live in a fear that we're going to be left behind. We live in confidence that this is the whole reason Jesus came. This was the whole purpose of God, that he might have fellowship with man, that this separation of all this time from the days of Adam and Eve until the days of Jesus, that this separation would be ended and that God and his people would be united, that his family would be together. That has always been his purpose. And so we as Christians have this amazing confidence because it's God's will that he lose none of those who are given to him. It's God's will that he raise us up on the last day. It's God's will that he give us everlasting life. That we can take home as a promise. That we can have confidence on. I don't know what will happen to the stock market. I don't know what will happen to COVID. I don't know what will happen to my own health. But something that I do know is that there is another lifelong eternity, everlasting life that I am walking in. And it started the day that I crossed over from death to life when I believed in Jesus. The day that I found Jesus, John says, Jesus said in John chapter 5, that we crossed over from death to life. We're now part of his family, and he won't lose any of those who have been given to him. Let's just read a portion of this again. It's just too good to pass up. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he gives me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. That everyone who looks to Jesus, everyone who believes in him, everyone. Are you an everyone? You're not going to be left behind. Remember that. Someday when you're on your deathbed and you're really, really sick and you can't think straight and you can't remember all the promises, at least remember He's not going to lose you. Someday when you're senile, someday when you can't make sense of things, He won't lose you. He won't lose you. If you spend 10 years in dementia and you don't even know these things, he's not going to lose you. It's not going to be that he suddenly thinks you forgot him. He knows our frail bodies. He knows that we are wearing out. He knows that we're in a tent, but he's interested in having fellowship with his people. And the good news that we're preaching today is that the universal understanding around the world is that Jesus has promised us a new life and a new body, a body without dementia, a body that doesn't forget, 
a body that does the will of its owner and that it isn't fighting against us or God. We have great confidence because it's promised by Jesus. He loves us. Thirdly, we have great confidence because he promises new bodies. And what are they going to be like? So, it's fun to read the Gospels. It's fun to read the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priest and then the everyday common person, the fishermen, and how all of these people react to Jesus or how he reacts to them. And this is a very big, broad brush stroke, but so many times it's the leaders who are having trouble with him and the everyday common crowd just loves him to bits because he's saying things that they say, man, I wish I would have thought of that. And he's got such wisdom. And so he's got this time where he's being challenged by the Sadducees. Now, this is ridiculous because the Sadducees don't believe there is a resurrection. And that they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, so let me tell you this story. There's this guy that got married to this lady and then he died. And then they start asking about the resurrection. Actually, what happened was he died, the next brother died, the next brother died. Seven different brothers got married to the same lady and they didn't have any kids. But the big question was, so at the resurrection, who's married to her? She's been married seven times. Who's she in a relationship with in heaven? And this is asked by people that don't believe about the resurrection. Now, it's as comical as you can get, but it's an awesome story. And so let's just pick it up in Luke chapter 20. Jesus replied, and this just gives us a little snapshot of what will our resurrected bodies be like? And, well, let's just read it. Chapter 20, verse 34 of Luke. Jesus said, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will not marry or be given in marriage. that a relief for some of you? Sorry, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> they will not marry or be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since, God, since they are children of the resurrection. So that's one window. We're going to pause there. We're going to come back to verse 37 in a minute. So Jesus says to these Sadducees, actually, at the resurrection, there's not going to be marriage. You're going to be in a relationship with God Almighty. You're going to be surrounding the throne. You're going to be worshiping Him. And you're going to be totally doing His will and accountable to Him. But you're not going to have these allegiances and alliances and accountabilities of your husband, your wife, or your mom or your dad, or your boss that still is your boss in heaven your company, you're not going to be in a union, you know, you're not going to have any of that. You're going to be like the angels. So that's one little window. I don't really know what it's like to be an angel. I certainly wasn't in any time in my life, but that aside, I, we don't really know much about it, but we get a little glimpse that somehow Jesus says, we'll be like them. And then he goes on. But, about the account, <clears throat> but in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus said, he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living, for all are alive to him. Jesus, speaking many, many years after Moses, says, guys, even Moses knew that the dead rise. The, whole, the Old Testament has this view all the way through. 
And God is not the God of the dead. Now, he's speaking to the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. He's like, guys, you're a big political group, but actually you're way off when it comes to these kind of things because you don't understand the scripture. And he speaks to these politicians and he says, sorry guys, but there is a resurrection because we're serving the God who is the God of the living. And for God, all of them from Moses until now and until Vancouver days now, they're alive to God. They're alive to God. Another passage that we won't put on the screen here, you might see uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about the time that Jesus went up on a mountain with three of his disciples and there's a transfiguration. And his clothes begin to glow and they woke out of their stupor and they saw him speaking with Moses and Elijah. Whoa! And they were alive, talking to Jesus. And Peter freaked out and said, whoa, let me build a house for each of you. And he's like, ah, don't worry about this right now. But here is another glimpse of those from long ago in that moment with Jesus, they're actually alive and well. And they're talking with Jesus about the crucifixion and resurrection that were to come. So what kind of a body is he going to give us? It's going to be something like angels. It's not going to be connected to the kind of allegiances and, and relationships we have now. And yet, we will recognize people. They recognized Moses and Elijah even though they had not met them before. That's interesting. They knew who they were. So we will recognize Jesus when he came back from the dead and he met Thomas. He says, Thomas, look at my hands and my feet. I'm the same guy. Stop doubting and believe. And he showed him his scars. So somehow, even his body had a resemblance of what Thomas had known before. And yet at the same time, this was Jesus who could just appear on the road to Emmaus and then disappear a little bit later in Luke chapter 24. This is the Jesus who could broil fish in the end of the book of John and sit there and eat breakfast with him. I don't know what kind of a body that is that does supernatural things, but at the same time does things we're used to, like eating and being recognized. We don't know these details, but we know that we will be like him, as the next passage says. Philippians chapter 3, chapter 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. You have a lowly body, if you didn't know that. Even you exercise bodybuilder people, you have a lowly body. It's nothing like what you're going to get. And he's going to transform our lowly, aging, pudgy bodies to become like him. And we get to be like him and like the angels. Now that gives us confidence. That gives us hope. And it might be fun for, you know, people like myself who are halfway as healthy anyway. But think what this means for somebody who in this life is crippled, a paraplegic. Think what this means for somebody in this life who has huge health issues. Think what it means for somebody in this life who has suffered and suffered and suffered with their health. To read this promise and say, hey, that lowly body, you're going to get a new one. People are still going to know who you are, but you're not going to have these issues. And Scripture goes on in many other places, of course, famously in Revelations, of there's no more troubles or trials or pain or suffering. But the new body is coming, and that gives us great, great confidence. We look forward to the future. 
In fact, I'll never forget Joyce Smith, an old lady when I came to the church 20-some years ago, and she was limping one day. I said, Joyce, what's wrong? Oh, my knee is hurting so bad. I said, oh, Joyce, I'm so sorry about your knee. And she stopped me. She said, don't bother about my knee. I'm having so much fun down here. If I didn't have these kind of troubles, I don't think I'd be ready to go. <laughs> she was an honorary lady, and she was much loved. Don't worry about my knee. I've got a new body coming. This is what makes me ready to get out of here. John chapter 3. First uh, John chapter 3. John says it another way. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet made, been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So John tells his church, I don't know the full story. I know I'm God's child. We are God's children. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I do know this. We're going to be like Jesus. It's interesting. I was just reading uh, J.I. Packer's little book called Growing in Christ, where he's actually going through the Apostles' Creed. It's a wonderful resource uh, for home groups and stuff. And he drew out the point of this verse. He's like, is that good news to you? Like, the idea of being like Jesus. For some people, it's good news. For other people, it sounds really boring. And he was, he was highlighting the idea of, are you currently led by your carnal desires or by the Jesus desires? Because if you're led by the carnal desires and you just ask yourself, if I was in my own man-made heaven, what would it be like? And I would have these things, and I would have these relationships, and I would do this, and I would have fun doing that. And it's filled with all your selfish gratification ideas. If that's your life motivation, these verses don't actually give you much to look forward to. Jesus was full of heaven's life, giving to others, supplying others, changing the world, standing up to wrong authority, confident, but he wasn't self-gratifying. He was the one who had no place to lie his head. He wasn't in his private jet. He wasn't surrounded by babes. Right? And Jesus beat death. But the good news is, he's actually gone forward as the first among his brothers and sisters, the first among humanity, who will also follow. And that's very different than the celebrities of our day and age, where they do heroic things, and we all think, whoa, they're amazing, I could never do that. But the point of what we're saying today that gives us so much confidence is the new body is something that you look at and say, whoa, that's amazing, and I get to do that soon. Wow. We will be like him, and I get to do that soon. Oh, kids, you might think it's 100 years away for you, and it is. That's soon. 100 years is a short, short time, and we get to look forward to a long, long, long time of happiness and joy and peace and no striving and no conflict and no homework. Amen. School starts this week. You guys need that. 
And then John finalizes his thought with this. What are the ramifications of that? Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. What? Everyone who has these hopes, somehow that makes us live different on earth. Why is that? And that's our last point. We have confidence in the resurrection and the everlasting life. We are happy about this. The fourth reason is because today has purpose. Today has accountability. This life matters too. And Paul takes it from the opposite. John says, if you have all these wonderful hopes, you purify yourself and you try to be like Jesus. You imitate him. You follow him. Paul says it the other way. Look at Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. He had poured out his life. This guy was nuts. He was just going and going and going. Traveled the world, went through shipwrecks, got beaten a whole bunch of times, almost killed a whole bunch of times, always had somebody hating him, and yet he's going everywhere to tell the good news that Jesus has paid for our sins. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for as Israelites. Here's uh, Paul saying, why in the world would I do that if resurrection isn't true? I, if I fought the wild beast in Ephesus for merely human re reasons, then what did I gain? If the dead are not raised, well, eat, drink, and be merry. I'm dying tomorrow. If we're not going to have a resurrection, who cares what I do? Just enjoy life. Just live for self. Just gratify yourself. Why would I bother serving God, going through persecution, going through hardship, following Jesus? Why would I bother if it's just about some philosophy for the next 20 years of my life? Oh, I'm part of this friendship group, and we all have these ideas together, and we think it's really cool to believe this and believe that philosophy, and so we're all trying to live in the same lifestyle. What? For what? 20 years of something? He's like, why would I do that? Eat, drink, get married. Tomorrow you're dying anyway. A few verses earlier, in verse 19, he said, If it's only for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most pitied. Of all the religions in the world, of all the people in the world, if Jesus isn't, hasn't risen, and if we aren't going to rise, we are a sorry lot. May everyone pity us. If there's no afterlife, why please God? Why imitate? Why resist your self-gratifying temptations? Why? And so Paul says it from the other way because there's an accountability that happens. When we know that there's a resurrection and we know that Jesus has said that some are rising to be greatly rewarded and others are rising to be condemned, we suddenly step back and say, He's the master. I want to know his will. I want to become pure like him. I want to follow him. He's the one I answer to. How I live today matters. And suddenly, it makes a difference to us. And it makes all of these things worth finding his will and following him because it will be richly rewarded. And so in this passage, Paul concludes his thought. He's talking to the church in Corinth He's talking about the resurrection, and he says it wouldn't be worth it otherwise, and then he finishes with this application. Verse 33, do not be misled. 
Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Isn't that amazing? Because of the resurrection, Paul says two things. One, it's not worth it otherwise. And two, because it's true, stop sinning and follow him. Come back to your senses. Bad company is corrupting your good character. People are leading you astray. But the resurrection is true. And because the resurrection is true, it brings an accountability and a purpose to today. Today matters. Not only does today matter, but today has hope. By the way, if you want a good read, just read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is this big, long, 60-verse passage all about the resurrection. So there's a lot of stuff you can go there. We didn't have time for all of it. But in verse 54, hope for today. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when our dying bodies are reconverted with our living bodies, Paul says, then there will be a saying that will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Yes, there's a sting of death. It's called sin. And yes, sin has power because there's God's holy law. But thank you, Jesus. There's a way through all of this victory because he has paid for that and he has given us a new life that is no longer under the judgment of the law, but is under the grace of God, freely given to us. Death is gone, vanished. Victory has come. Life everlasting is ours. And then he says, therefore, my friends, stand firm and let nothing move you. The application of this resurrection knowledge is stand your ground, don't be shaken. Be confident and always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Not your labor in your family or in your church or in your business. Your labor in, I'm following Jesus, and daily he's leading me this way and that way and this way. And it causes me to follow his will and not my will. I lay down my first desires and I lay down my first gratifications, my natural inclinations to help myself. And I just say, Father, Master, Jesus, what would you have me to do today? And that labor that we follow him in causes us to relate to our family different. It causes us to relate to our enemies different. It causes us to relate to our boss different or to our employees different. And we represent him and we become like him now, but for sure in the future, more and more from glory to glory, he changes us. It gives us a confidence So about three weeks ago, I happened to be in a dentist office. And the only topic anybody talks about to make small talks is some pandemic that's been going on. And so the employees were all talking about this and there was three people at the desk when I was checking out and paying the bill. And uh, something got said about COVID and this and that and more regulations. And, you know, out of my mouth came some smart aleck thing like, well, we're all going to die anyway. 
instantly, the dentist said, that's easy for you to say, you're a Christian. <laughs> Whoa! I, it, it was just so sincere. We know each other. We've known each other for a few years, and, and uh, he, we've talked about Jesus. But I was so shocked. I'm just goofing around saying, yeah, well, you know, 10 out of 10 die anyway. That's kind of the stats these days. And he's like, well, easy for you to say. You're a Christian. Wow. Even those who are not yet following Jesus see the confidence we have. It makes a difference. It makes such a difference. We have confidence because we know that death is the enemy and he's given us life. We know that Jesus has promised us resurrection. We know that our bodies are going to be like him and the angels. We know that it makes a difference today, that it gives purpose to our life and our actions every day matter because we're being richly rewarded. And we know that when our loved ones die, we are not without hope like the rest of the world. Or as Paul said to those in Thessalonica, don't grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, and on and on. That's Thessalonians chapter something, four. You can look that up later. We don't have grief like the rest of the world. We grieve because we miss people. We hate death. It's wrong. It's a tragedy. It shouldn't have happened. They were too young. Yes, yes, yes. But we say all those things with the knowledge that we have life everlasting. Life everlasting. Life everlasting. We have confidence that Jesus has promised. Let's stand together. The worship team can come. I'm going to give you one last scripture to dwell on. When John started out the book of Revelations, he brings a greeting from Jesus Christ. Jesus loves us. Jesus really, really loves you. Listen to what he says. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings of the earth, he says grace and peace to you from him. Grace and peace to you from him, to him who loves us, to him who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. May he have glory and power. He is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sin. You're not going to be left behind. We have new bodies, and everlasting life. Amen. Amen.